You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is from Nehemiah chapter 4, starting in verse 1, if you want to follow along. Now, when Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall and all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. But when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. And I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be on guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. This is the word of the Lord. Nehemiah was living in a place called Susa. He was serving as the cupbearer to the king named Artaxerxes. He gets word 
that the city of Jerusalem and the people of God are in ruins. They are in constant threat of invasion because of breakdown in their infrastructure and they're in spiritual shambles. So God stirs his heart to begin to pray and to plan for the rebuilding of the wall. And ultimately, as we've seen, for the rebuilding of a city and a people. After getting letters of recommendation and resources from the king, he enters into Jerusalem to rally the people to build. And they rise to the occasion. You've got this diverse group of people from every walk of life. You see um, young and old and rich and poor and clergy and lay people and citizens and foreigners and sons and daughters. An amazing image of God unifying people around the work together. But of course, like we knew it was coming. And like anyone engaging in in the good work of rebuilding should expect, there is opposition. Look with me again in verse 1. Now, when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was what? Angry and greatly what? Enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. In a recent book called The Persuaders, it's a book about the fight for hearts and minds, the author opens up with this true story of espionage and warfare. In 2014, two women arrived in the United States on a mission. One of them was a high-ranking official in the IRA, which is the Internet Research Agency based out of St. Petersburg, Russia. It was an organization believed to be working with the Russian intelligence And like spies would, they had burner phones, they had small cameras, they had falsified travel documents, and they traveled around the United States visiting at least nine states to gain intel. And their mission was to figure out ways to destabilize society. They were getting information about our vulnerabilities in order to exploit them on a grand scale. And they found that the most effective way to destabilize the political system as well as public interaction was by using the weapon of social media and the spread of disinformation to stir up division. So a a federal report found that in the years following their trip, based on the intel that they collected here stateside, that the IRA attracted 76 million engagements on Facebook, 183 million likes on Instagram, and sent out over 10 million tweets, often antagonistic or deceptive messages intending to bring disunity. So here's the rundown. They found the pressure point, and then they pressed on it, right? These are people that are already insecure. These are people that already don't trust people. These are people that already don't get along. Let's hit them where it hurts. An analysis that was given over to the United States Senate investigators stated that the goal of this movement was, quote, to undermine trust, exploit societal fractures, and blur the lines between reality and fiction. Sound familiar? Discourage, divide, deceive. It's clever. It is wildly effective but it is not new. It's actually the oldest trick in the book, quite literally. If we look back to the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, we read that God placed Adam and Eve in the garden with a good mission to cultivate and subdue, to Edenize the world, 
called together to do beautiful work with God, to, be, to build something beautiful together. But when humanity's enemy, the serpent, appears on the scene and he cannot stand to see God's people flourish, he uses similar tactics, undermine trust, exploit societal fractures, blur the lines between reality and fiction. Genesis 3, verse 2, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He's pulling Eve aside. He's isolating her. He's getting her to question God. He's getting her to question her understanding of what God has actually said. And he is creating a scenario as we read on in Genesis 3 that will set people up to then blame each other and turn on each other. So how does the snake bite? It's a word that we find in Nehemiah 4. It's through confusion. How does the snake bite? Confusion. No, you misunderstood him. No, 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 you won't die if you eat of it. He's, he's afraid that you're going to become like him. He's, he's, if you ask me, I think he's holding out on you. What, what is this silly arrangement that you guys have with God here? What are you doing? Back in Nehemiah 4, when Sanballat and Tobiah seek to oppose the work of God, they begin with a similar line of questioning, verses 2 and 3. And he said in the presence of brothers, of his brothers and the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. So what does this mean for us? Well, as Christians, those living in the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ and seeking to live for God and the purposes of God, we should also expect a similar pattern of opposition in our lives as well. The New Testament writer, the Apostle Peter, would tell us this in 1 Peter chapter 5, be, sober mind, be sober-minded, be watchful for your adversary who? The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Therefore, resist him firm in your faith. Who are we talking about here? Satan. Satan. The biblical picture, N.T. Wright writes, the biblical picture of Satan is thus of a non-human and non-divine, quasi-personal, I'm not sure exactly what that means, but it sounds right, Force which seems bent on attacking and destroying creation in general and humankind in particular and above all thwarting God's project of remaking the world and human beings in and through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. So track with me here. The characters are going to change. The serpent, Sambalot, fill in the blank. But what we know biblically is that the work of Satan is somehow always behind opposition to the work of God. Him remaking his people. And so just as we saw the hidden hand of God at work in chapter 2, here in chapter 4 we now see the fingerprints of Satan. Clues 
and characteristics that are consistent with how the Bible describes Satan elsewhere, and really ways that we can expect his attack in our lives today as well. So here's how we're going to begin. What are the tactics of the enemy that we see here in Nehemiah and that we should expect in our lives as well? The first is this, discouragement. Discouragement. You feeble Jews, you weak, pathetic people. You are so weak, you are so pathetic, you can't do anything, you are useless, you're never going to finish this. Even if you do finish it, it's going to crumble under the weight of a fox. What is the enemy doing? The enemy is identifying their insecurities and then exploiting them. And here's what the enemy does. He uses truth. The Jews are feeble. This is an previously oppressed, now just sort of picking up the pieces kind of people. They are not strong politically. They are not strong in their unity. They are not strong spiritually. They are a weak people, and the enemy is exploiting it. What are the tactics of the enemy? Number two, doubt. Will they restore it for, or literally, by themselves? In other words, what the enemy is saying is clearly they're on their own. Look at them. They're abandoned. Does this look like a people who have God on their side? Look at them. What are they going to do? What are the tactics of the enemy? Number three, distraction. Have you guys seen what you're working with? Are you stupid or are you in denial? What Really, what are you going to build out of this? Look at the rubble. And it's not just rubble. It's charred rubble at that. Look at this. No, 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 don't pay attention to the work. No, 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 never mind the calling of God. No, 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 forget who the Lord is on, no, no, no. Look at this, look at this, look at the rubble, look at the brokenness, look at the dysfunction, look at how they've wounded you, look at what's wrong with the church, look, no, no, look at this, look, 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 look. What are the tactics of the enemy? Number four, deception. Later in verses seven through eight, we read this, but when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause what? Confusion in it. To confuse. What are they seeking to do? Blur the lines. All you Robin Thicke fans are getting excited right now. <clears throat> Blur the lines between reality and fiction. In fact, back in chapter 2, we read that as Nehemiah rolls into town and the people arise for the building of this project, they begin to accuse the people of rebelling against the king. They are saying, you're breaking the law. What you're doing is wrong. That's what the enemy does. It tries, he tries to get the people of God confused about what is right and wrong. Maybe we are doing something wrong here. I, I know what we've been called to, but I didn't expect this sort of opposition. Maybe what we are doing here is not the right thing. Maybe, maybe we are wasting our time. Maybe we do need to give up here. What are the tactics of the enemy? Number five, division. The enemies of Israel are most enraged. They are most upset and they turn up the heat on their opposition when they find out that the project is moving forward and specifically that the breaches or the holes in the wall are being closed. They cannot stand to hear that the people are coming together. 
when the fractures between the groups are closing up. And so they conspire to find those weak points to then wedge their way in. And what's sad about this here, I think what's most sad about this whole story is that in part, Sambalot and Tobiah succeed. Verse 10, in Judah, it was said, the strength of those who are bearing the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Maybe they're right, guys. Maybe this is too broken. Maybe we should just give up. Some of the people of God believed what the enemy was saying. And what's worse, really, is that they began to then urge others to give up and walk away as well. Look at me in verse 12. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions. They come out of the woodworkings here and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. It's over, guys. It was a good run. We gave it a good shot, but we're done. Give up. Walk away. Come home. Come home. Come home. No, come home. Give up. See, it is one thing, and actually it's something that we should expect, to be cornered by the enemy. To be cornered and surrounded by the enemy saying, give up, give up, give up. That should not shock us, that should not surprise us, that that should not discourage us. But it is devastating when it's your own brothers and sisters saying it to you. When it's the people of God now surrounding you and saying, it's done. In a famous military handbook called The Art of War, Sun Tzu says this, supreme excellence consists of breaking the enemy's resistance without fighting. In other words, defeat your opponent before the battle even begins. Sambalot and Tobiah, if you're paying attention here, are all bark and no bite. No bite. They have not even lifted a finger against Jerusalem. We hear about the people of Jerusalem taking up arms. We don't hear about any swords in their hands. No swords, no fighting, no battle, no bloodshed, no violence, all words. They just broke their spirits down and wore them down and then got the people to begin to dismantle their own efforts from the inside out. That is all the enemy has to do to get God's people to stop the good work of rebuilding, to get us to turn on each other and to give up on each other. I'm gonna repeat that. All the enemy has to do to stop progress among God's people in the kingdom of God is to get us to just give up on each other. No violence, no fighting, no bloodshed, just deuces, I'm out. But in the midst of such persistent attack, we do see a number of people responding in extraordinary faith and courage and unity. 
And so secondly, how did God's people respond? How do God's people respond to such intense attack? First, they prayed. They respond with prayer. As they're being mocked, as they're being belittled, I want you to notice this. Nehemiah does not fight back. He doesn't argue with them. He doesn't fight fire with fire. He does not try to clear his name. He does not try to vindicate himself. He doesn't even engage the enemy. No words spoken to the enemy at all. What does he do? He prays, verse six, or verse four through five. Hear, O God, O our God, for we are despised. God, pay attention here. We are ashamed. This is embarrassing. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. This is what is called an imprecatory prayer. We actually covered uh, these sort of prayers this time last year in our Psalms series. If you want to go back and listen to that, it was in Psalm 59. But as we read this Psalm, it is probably very uncomfortable language for us here, right? This doesn't sound very godly. This doesn't sound like the right kind of prayer that we want to be praying. But I want to tell you this. It is a legitimate And it is a biblical prayer for justice and vindication. And I want you to think about this practically. I want you to think about this personally as well. This, an imprecatory prayer, is the way that that a believer guards themselves against retaliating. An imprecatory prayer is how we say, I don't trust myself with this kind of hurt. I don't trust myself under such embarrassing circumstances. I know my natural impulse is to get even. I know my natural impulse is to fight fire with fire, to engage the enemy. So I'm going to instead place it in God's hands. I'm gonna let him fight my battles. I'm gonna let him be my defense. I'm gonna let him be my vindication. I'm going to believe the scriptures that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. You guys still with me? Personally, I I just want to put this out here. I have not uh, faced the same level of attack that Nehemiah and the people of God have faced. So I'm not trying to put myself on the same level here. But I can tell you this. Over the years, I have taken some heat on holding the line on issues regarding God and the purity of the reputation of Christ among his church, taking some heat. And I actually have the gift of forgetfulness, so I don't ruminate on it too much. But I can tell you that I've almost heard it all. Um, about seven years ago, we were in the middle of a very difficult season of transition, very painful, uh, necessary changes that a lot of people did not like. Removing leaders, getting out of a building that was literally gonna kill us one day, total overhaul of very unhealthy patterns among God's people. And I was at a wedding with my wife and a couple that had previously been a part of reality that was not a big fan of these changes, while we're at this wedding, stand up from the table to cause a scene in front of the people that they're with so that other people can say, or other people can hear and they say, come on, let's go. I can't be in the presence of someone so evil. Talking about me. And when I heard about this, 
I'm not going to tell you what I thought. <laughs> um, that's between me and the Lord. Um, but I can tell you all the natural impulses were like ready to rear their head. But I realized, what, what, what are my options in this moment? L- literally, what are my options? Because I'm not just here representing me. I'm, I'm, I'm here taking heat for the church. Like, what is the option? And I can tell you that I have, in these situations, failed many a times. But in this situation, I was just like, I have no other option but to trust God. I, I'm going to have to bear the reproach. And I'm going to have to leave it to God to sort it out. And, and here's the point. Our response to being offended and I know this lands with every single one of us here because we've all been offended. Our response to being offended reveals whether or not we believe that God is truly our vindication. How we respond in those moments reveals what we actually believe to be true about God as our defense. And I had to trust that God would sort it out. Secondly, we see that they are pressing on. What was their response to the discouragement and these threats? They kept building. There's a beautiful little statement here in verse 6. So we built the wall. We just kept going. There's a beautiful pattern that repeats. I believe it's three times in Nehemiah 4. The enemy opposes, the people trust God and pray, and then the work continues. And again, and again, and again, they return to the work. Even in this like amazing scene where some of them had to take up arms to protect their family, they've got a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. Why? We're not gonna let the work stop. Even if I have to take up the sword, we're gonna keep working because the enemy is not worth stopping this good work. This is how we fight. This is how we prevail, by sticking with it. And I want to encourage you with this. We do not have to outwit the enemy. We don't have to outfight the enemy. We just simply have to outlast the enemy. We prevail through perseverance. The enemy is persistent. We see that here. But God will provide his people with staying power. God will make his people stubborn and loyal to his mission. I love a story from church history. In the second century, there was a governor of a place called Bithynia Pontus by the name of, and all you Russian River Brewery fans, calm down here, Pliny the Younger. Uh, Okay, and so that's good. Not a lot of drinkers in the church. Um, um, Just kidding. So we were very, he was very concerned. When I do that, I get so off track. Okay, bring it back in here. Pliny the Younger was so concerned about the influence that Christianity was going to have in the Roman Empire, the way that it would potentially undermine their power structures and dynamics. And so he enacted this legal action that essentially allowed him to become judge, jury, and executioner. He could call people to himself, question them, and then dole out whatever kind of punishment he saw fit in those circumstances. And so he would call Christians before him, and under the threat of death, he would ask them if they were disciples of the way of Jesus. And this is what he wrote to the emperor to explain what he was doing in his province. He said, I interrogated them as to whether they were Christians. And those who confessed, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. 
And those who persisted, I ordered executed. For I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, I don't even really care what they believe, whatever the nature of their creed, stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy surely deserve to be punished. So what is the crime in Rome? What is worthy of capital punishment? Obstinacy. Stubbornness. Being unwilling to waver when it came to Jesus and his mission. But as we look back, here's what we know. Rome fell, but the church still stands. And Pliny is dead. And Christ lives. And our enemy is persistent, but by God's grace, the Bible tells us we will outlast him. His time is short. And for those who trust in the gospel, we will reign with Christ forever. The Apostle Paul in Romans 16 says this, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Satan is a defeated foe. The cross of Jesus Christ has already sealed his fate. So what is our call? We're not defeating Satan. Jesus already did that. What's our call? To patiently resist him and to press on until that day. Thirdly, we see them prioritizing. What was their response to distraction from the enemy? Trying to pull them away, trying to get them focused on all that was wrong and all that could go wrong and all of the failure? They prioritized the work of God that he had called them to. Look with me in the second half of verse six. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Anyone have the NIV out there? Guys, this is my last warning. I'll start calling on people. (laughs) Anyone have NIV? What's it say? Instead of mind to work worked with all their heart. The battle is a battle over your priorities. The battlefield is your mind and your heart. Jerusalem is a prop. The battle is in the mind and the heart of God's people. And the enemy does not care If you believe intellectually that Jesus is risen from the dead, the enemy does not care if God is an important part of your life. The enemy does not care if you give a little bit of your time and a little bit of your money and a few weekends out of your month to your Christianity. What threatens the enemy and turns up the heat on his attack against God's people is single-minded focus on living for God. It's when God's people offer their whole mind, whole heart, whole strength, whole soul to the kingdom of God. When Jesus and his mission to build his church remain first and foremost in our lives. When we refuse to allow anything else to prioritize our life or our family or our money or our time. In other words, when we together take serious Jesus' call to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. While the enemy is trying to get them off track, 
He's trying to get them distracted with the rubble. Look down, look down, look at the brokenness, look at the rubble, look how charred it is, look at the dysfunction, look at all the things that could go wrong. They give their full attention to the mission of rebuilding. How do God's people respond? Fourth, they're pointing to the truth. They're pointing to the truth. We all know from the old Western movies that when you're challenged to a duel, you bring a revolver. You're in the boxing ring, you bring your gloves. You're on, in a race, internationally televised bike race, you bring undetectable uh, performance-enhancing drugs. Like, <laughs> like, it's what you do. But listen, if you face an onslaught of disinformation from an enemy that is known as a liar and Jesus calls the father of lies, what do you bring to a battle with him? You bring truth. You present the truth of God's word. Or as Paul would say in Ephesians 6, the sword of the spirit. This is the sword that we take up. These are the arms that we take up as God's people, the truth. The only way to effectively battle deception is with truth. It's not strength. It's not determination. It is not grit. It is not smarts. It's not organizational skills. It's not passion. It is something that any and every believer possesses right now. It's the truth of God's word. The Apostle Paul would say this in 2 Corinthians 10, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. That's not how we do it. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. When was the last time you opened up your Bible early in the morning as you're like rubbing out the little crusties in your eye and you said, right now, I am demolishing arguments and I am kicking pretension in the face for the sake of obedience to Jesus Christ? Probably never. Tomorrow you will. When the morale is decreasing and, and the people are believing the lies and the work is right now being threatened to stop. Like they're right on the brink of stopping this work. Nehemiah wages war with truth. And he points them, here's how you have these weapons too. He points them directly to the scriptures. He quotes Deuteronomy. He's not being creative here. He just reads the Bible. Just reads the Bible. You don't have to be novel. Just read the Bible. And he says, do not be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. So when the opposition gets loud, you've got to let the truth ring louder. It's got to be louder. Look what you're working with. Yeah, but look who's for us. You are screw up. Yeah, but my God's a restorer. Your, your community is trash. Yeah, but we've got a great redeemer. He's our restorer. He's our renewer. You, 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 have, you have made your life this like horrible screw up. But I'm believing in the gospel of Jesus who makes beautiful things out of brokenness. See, when the enemy confuses, when the enemy condemns, we don't just point to truth in general, like just open up your Bible and say truth. Where do we point? We point to the, to the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. 
We, we point to Jesus, our Savior, who bled and died and rose for our forgiveness and our renewal. We point to who God is, and we point to who now we are in light of the gospel. We point to our identity. We point to those things that are fixed. We don't point to our past. We don't point to our present. We don't point to our brokenness. We don't point to the best things that we, we can accomplish. We point to Jesus. And we keep pointing to Jesus. i got to keep moving. So much to cover here. Lastly, we see them protecting the unity. Protecting the unity. When the enemy was looking to exploit the fractures and divide them, they rallied together and they fought to protect the unity together. And they made sure the enemy did not have a foothold, a stronghold to wedge their way in. They said, literally, not on our watch. Verse 19 through 20. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and, the, and is widely spread. And we are separated on the wall. Separation is a problem. Far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. This was a call, and this is a resounding call to us, reality, to stick together. To avoid being separated. He's saying, bring it in. Get close. Close the gaps. It is not my God will fight for me. It is our God will fight for us. So I hope you're saying right now in your mind, how? Like how? That's great. I'm inspired by all this courageous, like kicking Satan in the teeth stuff. But how are we supposed to do this? Because I'm barely able to get out of bed every day. I am just struggling to like get my kids to school and pay the bills. And you're talking about waging war against hell? Where on earth do we find the courage? And I hear, here's a really pertinent word, I think. Where on earth do we find the energy to do this? And I want to remind us that the resources for any and everything that we see here is already ours in Jesus Christ. Access to God in prayer, in Jesus' name. The strength to press on through the power of his resurrection. The ability to prioritize our lives around the things of God the new heart that is ours through the new covenant in Jesus. Confidence in who God is and who we are is provided through the gospel. The unity that we enjoy and we fight for, it's ours through the one body and the one spirit. It is all ours in Jesus Christ. And yes, yes, the fight may feel extraordinary. And I know for people in our church right now that there are extraordinary times, intense seasons of attack upon us right now. And in extraordinary times, the temptation is to believe that we somehow need to reach outside of the resources that are already ours in the gospel. We need to look beyond what we have in Jesus. We need to look beyond what is ours in the gospel for these extraordinary moments. But I want to remind you that the way that we resist and the way that we prevail is always going to be the same, no matter how intense the season of attack it is always going to be through Jesus Christ. And at the end of the day, it's really not about us fighting our enemy. At the end of the day, it's not about us bringing home the win. At the end of the day, it's about us standing in the victory of the one who has already defeated our enemy 
through his death and his resurrection. What is this? What is this? This is a fight to resist firm in our faith. This is a fight to trust the gospel. This is a fight to persevere in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Press on in him. Let's pray.